Well, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Yeah, was that weird for any of you? Come on, let's admit it. There's a lot of cool things that we do as a church, as Christians. Um, Easter is definitely one of them. Some of you are a part of this church family because you attended an Easter service. Um, we've had them in many places. We've held them in schools. We've held them uh, here in this building. We've had them just all over the place. And it's been great to uh, see God work uh, through the Easter message year after year. But I've noticed some things about Christian holidays. They can be very confusing. Do you know what I mean? Or very confused. And I think for most of us, we consider Christmas to be a very confused holiday, right? Like, how do you reconcile the the birth of Jesus with Santa Claus, right? And how do you make all that work? Um, I think, actually, that Easter, um, though it's declared the most significant celebration of the Christian church, is probably the most confusing holiday of all to comprehend. Um, let, Let me just kind of help you with this a little bit here and see if you agree with me or not. There's a whole series of special days that leads up to Easter. And I don't know about you, if you're familiar with any of these, but there's, uh, let's see, there's Maundy Thursday. Any of you familiar with that phrase? Any of you know what it means? Nope. Um, It's believed to come from a Latin word that was sung in a hymn in the Catholic Church at one time to talk about um, the, the, the washing of the disciples' feet. That's where it came from. No, I, it's, like, it's weird to me. I'm like, what is this word? I don't even know what it means. I, I keep feeling like I'm saying it wrong when I say it. Like it should be Monday or Monday, or, but it's Maundy Thursday. Then, if that's not enough, there's um, a Last Supper. Any of you know what the Last Supper is? Do you realize it's not really his Last Supper? As a matter of fact, he's going to have fish with his disciples a couple more times after the resurrection. How confusing is that? He still gets to eat. And that's a pretty important thing because it actually shows what his resurrected body is like that he can actually take on food and eat. Pretty cool. So the Last Supper really isn't his Last Supper, but we call it the Last Supper. Pretty confusing. Good Friday. All right. Many of you ever have a really, really, really bad day? The worst day of your life, would you dub it a good day? You have Jesus being falsely accused in the middle of the night, condemned, whipped, mocked, beaten. They put a crown on his head and actually smacked his head with a rod to make the crown stick in a little more. Put a robe on him, made fun of him, took the robe off and sent him out, crucified him, hung him on a cross next to two criminals, and we call that Good Friday. That's confusing to me. Now, a lot of times we think of it as Good Friday because of the benefit that we get from it. But do you realize that that happened because of the depravity of mankind? Because there was nothing good in us at all? It was a terrible, terrible Friday that that even had to happen. But the message of it is certainly good. Pretty confusing. Then there's Holy Saturday. You ever hear of Holy Saturday? All right, so Jesus hangs on a cross on Friday, they take him down because it's the day before Passover. Saturday comes, and the disciples can't do anything. It's Saturday. It's the day of rest. So they're like in suspension for a day until Sunday morning when the ladies head to the tomb. So there's this holy Saturday it's referred to as. Um, it commemorates this Sabbath where everything was kind of suspended um, for a day. And then there's the word Easter. Right? Let's get Holy Saturday up there. Then there's the word Easter. Anybody know where this word comes from? Not your Bibles. Uh, It's actually believed to be traced back to the uh, Anglo-Saxon goddess of fertility. You're like, what? Um, It's not even a biblical word. Shouldn't the most significant event in the Christian calendar at least have some connection to the word of God? The Greek word is anastasis, so why not have anastasis day? Because then nobody would know what that would mean either, right? So why not just call it resurrection day? And some traditions do, and I really prefer that over Easter, because I think Easter means nothing to us. So you have Maundy, I can't even say it right, Maundy Thursday, the Last Supper, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter. And when you put all those together, they obviously tell you what took place 
during the weekend of the crucifixion and resurrection. Can't you see, do you see it in there? Isn't that just clear? All right, well, maybe the words are a bit nondescriptive and maybe they're not that helpful. So maybe, maybe we should look at some of the symbols we have for Easter, right? So let's say um, a visitor from another planet came to Earth on Easter Sunday. What do you think this visitor would think Easter is all about? What's that? Eggs? These guys really like their eggs. What else? Bunnies? Not just any bunnies, but the Easter bunny. And then, there, if, then if the Easter bunny is this person, this thing that they obviously love and adore, and then they eat little versions of him. Some of them in chocolate and some in marshmallow. Oh, like how did Peeps even make the charts? They're disgusting. Candy, jelly beans, right? Now they're called jelly eggs in some places, not jelly beans. I guess we don't like beans like we like eggs. So if you did a, a Google or a Bing search on Easter, I think you would agree that the message of Easter is a little bit confusing. For instance, here's one. We have everything from a big Easter bunny in a costume at the White House, <laughs> right? to a, a real bunny in a basket with plastic eggs, to chocolate eggs, to a church with some guy in gold painted on the ceiling, right? I mean, it gets worse. There's activities to do with your pet on Easter. <laughs> some of you are like, ah, and I'm like, ew, right? That poor dog, right? That's just not, not right. So, yeah, I mean, what is... <laughs> The message of Easter. The most prominent symbols are the egg and the bunny. Pastel colors, right? I, I had to get a shirt with pastel colors to wear for Easter. I'm not, I'm not lying. I had to do that. Um, now, most of these probably come from the spring and, and the spring um, solstice. They, they actually come more from traditions having to do with spring and the goddess of fertility and zero to do with religious observations. Um, though many have attempted to attach religious meaning to a lot of these other things. We'll find ways to make the egg somehow symbolize the empty tomb. I guess if you suck the inside out, it is. Um, but it's like, anyway. So I thought, well, okay, we can't, we can't really go to the words we use and we can't really go to the images that we have. So let's just talk about some of the Easter traditions because surely, surely our Easter traditions would explain the meaning of Easter to us, right? So what are some of your Easter traditions? What's that? Egg hunts, yes. Anybody else? Come on, you can admit it, it's okay. What? Eating a chocolate bunny, head first, right? Cookout. Cookout, really? I like that one. What? Having peeps. Having peeps. <laughs> Rather have the cookout. Yes, Liam? Easter eggs, absolutely. And if you ever do like egg cracking, we have a contest with egg tapping. Have you heard of that? Oh, look that up sometime. That's kind of fun. You, you have hard-boiled eggs and you kind of like tap each other's eggs and see who survives the longest. It's, it's a tradition. Any others? There's a, the ham dinner. Think about that one. Jesus was a Jew, right? <laughs> Forbidden foods. Let's just have bacon, right? Let's have ham. Let's have... It, Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. What else? Church, going to church services, yeah. Anything else? Dressing up, wearing your Sunday best, right? I even wore a tie today, right? Because we have to dress up. Some people have been known to dress to the nines. I mean, like to really get into dressing up on Easter Sundays. Oh, David, I'm so glad I got to preach this Easter. So uh, I'm leaving that up for a little bit. So um, I, che <laughs> I checked out online some, some Easter traditions. Country Living came up with 32 of them. Um, Easter lilies is a, is a big tradition. 
Some people even have, like I saw bulletin covers that I could order for our service this morning that had the tomb and the open, the open tomb and lilies around it like they grow in Jerusalem. Okay? Um, dyeing uh, Easter eggs, baking a cake, flying kites. Number eight in their list was getting your feet washed because that's one of the things that Jesus did with his disciples. I'm like, okay, there's something biblical going on here. That's pretty cool. Um, go, to, go to church, play music, baptize people. A lot of churches have done baptisms on the, the Holy Saturday. It's a day for baptisms in, in their tradition. Like, okay. Um, egg tapping, wearing your Sunday best, Easter parades, visit the Easter Bunny. Which, by the way, visiting the Easter Bunny came out ahead of number 29 in the list of 32, which is actually like, read the Easter story. Now, while I'm glad it made the list, number 29, really, for Easter, the list activities you can find for Easter, they're, they're all over the place. From decorating trees with tobacco leaves, it's, it's a thing, to wearing costumes, to egg tapping competitions, to flying kites, to attending the reenactment of the crucifixion. Can it get more confusing than that? Think about it. With all the confusion in our society about Easter, I thought it would be good for us to spend a little bit of time this morning um, really unpacking what Resurrection Sunday really is all about and why it is and should be regarded as the most significant day in Christendom. So let's talk about Easter. If you go to dictionary.com, because we know the internet is the source of all truth, if you go to dictionary.com and you look up Easter, you'll get the annual Christian festival in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's okay. It's literal. It's textbook. Um, when you delve into the history of it, the traditions and such, you find out um, that very little with this Christian festival and commemoration has anything to do with the actual resurrection. So I thought we need a probably a little bit deeper definition. I found one actually from an, an amazing group called the Jews for Jesus. You ever hear of them? Well, on their website, and I've got a link, it'll be in the notes, um, they define it this way. Easter, or Resurrection Day, is a day to rejoice in Christ's victory over death and sin. A day to share that joy of salvation with a fallen world and to our own people. I thought that was a pretty good definition. So Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, it's the last day in this week of events that took place. And we've been studying them through the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, we're in this last week in our Gospel of Matthew study. And so we, if you want to get more detailed, want to know more about those events, we're going to be covering them in the weeks to come, and you're welcome to join us for that. But it's the last one after a series of really rapid-fire things take place in the weekend. Um, for instance, the events that lead up to it. Um, Thursday was when they had the Passover meal together, where they celebrated their exodus from Egypt. It was a festival that they would celebrate, and Jesus had that with his disciples. And then he's arrested that night. And then in the, in the morning, on Friday, he's actually put on trial falsely. He's whipped, he's beaten, he's crucified. And then before the end of the day, before the Sabbath starts, he's buried um, by, by two guys, actually, that we know of. There's probably others. We had Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. These two guys asked for Jesus' body from Pilate. Pilate was surprised Jesus was dead, verified that he was, and let them take him off the cross and bury him. After, and, that, and the sky was dark. Just before that, I should say, the sky was dark from noon to 3 o'clock. Or, or, um, yeah, from noon to 3 o'clock, the sky was dark. And then there was an earthquake, and then Jesus died, and then they buried him. Um, the, there was that Sabbath day of rest where nobody could do anything. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? Jesus was just crucified, put in a tomb, and now you have a whole day where you're commanded to do nothing but rest. What goes through your mind on a day like that? And then on Sunday, Sunday morning, as it's still dark, the ladies are heading toward the tomb. So at sunrise, they get to the tomb so they can finish 
the burial process for Jesus. I have a hunch they weren't in their Sunday best. Just going to throw that out there. Normally, these things that they were going to do would have been done the day that somebody dies. But because it was coming to the end of the day and they had to be done with their preparations before the Sabbath started, they came back to finish it. Now, no matter what book you read, or what video you watch, or what sermon you hear, almost all of them refer to the resurrection as the most significant event in Christianity. It's so important, so important, that the Apostle Paul even said this about it. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. That's how significant the resurrection is. If it didn't happen, our faith is in vain. It's that important. So what amazes me about a story that's that important is how so overwhelmingly underreported it is in the Gospels. The most significant event is hardly even spoken about in the Gospels. Let me show you what I mean. The Gospel of Matthew, the one that we've been studying, there's approximately 1,071 verses in it. I counted them all up. 1,071 verses. Only 25 of those verses speak of the events of the burial and resurrection of Jesus. 25 out of 1,071. That's about 2.3%. There's the same number of verses talking about his genealogy and birth. Half of Matthew's record of the resurrection is about the soldiers sealing the tomb and then getting bribed to tell a false story about what happened with Jesus' body. So half of those 25, approximately half of them, are actually not even about Jesus and his resurrection. That puts you um, about 14 verses left, and we're now down to 1.3%. And if you focus just on the actual resurrection, it's 10 verses, less than 1% of the Gospel of Matthew. Talks about the most significant event in Christendom. It's at this point in the narrative that Jesus had already been crucified on Friday, was buried, and we come to the tomb to find out if what he said was really true. This is important. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 28. I'm not going to have this on the screen, so you have to tap in your app or turn in your Bible. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. So after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. And the angel told the women, which, by the way, did not become like dead men. The angel told the women, don't be afraid, because I know you are here looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb, with fear and great joy, they ran to tell the disciples the news, and just then Jesus met them and said, greetings, and they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshiped him. And then Jesus told them, do not be afraid, Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. So I want us to to reflect on this passage together. Um, I want, first of all, to notice that these events took place immediately after the, the Sabbath, after the Shabbat, after this day of rest. The women head to the tomb to complete the burial rituals um, that they couldn't complete before the day of rest. It's the first day of the week. Now, If you go back to your creation story, God created for six days, and on the seventh day, he 
rested, right? So if the first day of the week is Sunday, you get to the end of the week, the last day, the seventh day, the day of rest is Saturday, and that is the Jewish Sabbath, is Saturday. You ever wonder why we meet on Sunday? Sunday was actually a day of work. That's why they were going to prepare Jesus' body at that point. It wasn't a day of rest for the early disciples. They still celebrated on the Sabbath, on the Saturday. But the resurrection was so significant to the church, to the believers in Jesus Christ, to the Messiah, that eventually they started meeting on the first day of the week. Many of them met on the Sabbath as well as on the Sunday initially. Um, they met on both. Uh, one to honor their, um, their faith and their tradition in, the, in um, following God's law on the Sabbath, and then the other one in honor of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So they would go two days a week. Um, but eventually it just migrated over for Christians to celebrate on Sunday, the first day of the week. Um, it's that significant of an event that it changed the way that the church meets and chooses to worship. There was an earthquake. Did you catch that? Big earthquake, right? An earthquake happened when Jesus died on the cross in chapter 27, verse 54, and now when Jesus is released from the grave. The giving up of his life was symbolized by an earthquake, and his being raised to new life was symbolized by an earthquake. Pretty cool stuff. The earthquakes become bookends of the passing of one life and the starting of the new life, the resurrection of the Messiah. There's the angels. Now, Matthew records one angel. Luke records two angels. Um, they're clothed in, in light. And Anybody have any other remembrances from the Gospel of Matthew where we had people clothed in light? Anybody think of anything? Transfiguration, another one of those good... Christian terms, right? Transfiguration. It's actually in, um, in Matthew chapter 17. I'll put this one up on the screen here. Jesus took his disciples at one point with him. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured in front of them. Therefore, we call that the transfiguration. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, I think that this resurrection passage where you have this angel appearing in white light, in, in lightning, and this, this brightness of white is very significant, and it's meant to draw you back to here. It's meant to take you back to this passage where we've seen this before. And the, the Bible works that way. You get these hyperlinks that kind of go back and forth. Well, why do I say I think it's a direct link? Well, because Jesus told his disciples as they were coming down the mountain, he commanded them, don't tell anyone about this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. What do you think is going to jar their memory of this vision? <laughs> well, gee, there's a white light and there's a transfiguration. They got to see a picture of what was happening to Jesus before it happened. The transfiguration was a peak. It was meant to prepare the disciples for the events of the resurrection. And the angels appearing was a reminder of the glory that Jesus now inherited. And just like the earthquakes bookended the, the earthly life of Jesus the, and the start of new life, these angels, they bookend the coming of the Messiah to do his work and the completion of the Messiah's work. It's really cool. So if you go back through the Gospels, there's some appearances of angels. Anybody think of any people that, were, that angels appeared to in the Gospels? There's Zechariah. Zechariah was the dad of John the Baptist, right? Matter of fact, he didn't believe that he could have a child, and so he laughed, and then so God made it so he couldn't talk. I think God has a sense of humor, frankly. I think that's pretty funny. Um, so we had an angel appear to Zechariah. An angel appeared to Mary, telling her that she was going to conceive, right? And then Joseph wanted to divorce Mary, and an angel appeared to Joseph and said, don't, don't divorce her, marry her. Then an angel appeared to Joseph again and said, you need to go to Egypt because somebody's trying to kill you. And then an angel showed up to Joseph again and said, you need to leave Egypt and go back to Israel because people who are trying to kill you, kill Jesus, excuse me, your son, they're gone now. So it's okay to go back. Not many people had three angelic appearances like that. 
And then, after the birth of Jesus, we also had the, the, the whole host of heavenly armies, of the angels, appear to a group of shepherds. Yeah, those that are high up in social status. Right? No. It's the group of earth wanderers with animals that were not very high up on the list, but a whole host of angels appeared. At the birth of Jesus, there were all these angelic events that took place that were meant to help explain what was going on at this time, to help those on earth understand what was happening in heaven, in the heavenly realms. Then, Jesus in the garden is actually ministered to by an angel before his crucifixion, and at the tomb and at the resurrection, we have these angels appearing. Those angelic appearances start the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth and announcing what he's come to do, and they also announce the end that he's done what he was sent to do. It's a beautiful thing. There's so much packed in this little tiny passage about what God has accomplished. And these angels, they represent a connection between the earthly and the heavenly. We would call this, what, an apocalypse, right? Where the heaven and the earth realms overlap and where they actually are revealed to each other. Those of you that are in the Ephesians group are like, yep, he got it in there. It's an apocalypse. The message of the angel. So I want to think about the message that the angel said. So I think that the angel's message is probably one of the best, um, most powerful sermons ever recorded. And I want us to read that together. Matthew 28, verses 6 and 7. The angel said to Mary and to the other Mary, He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. So come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and indeed is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. Actually, that word listen is not the word listen. It's see, I have told you. Um, The word see shows up about five times in this passage. It's beautiful. So the first message is, he is not here. Well, I think that's kind of obvious, don't you? I think they kind of figured that out when they got there. There's a body that's supposed to be there, and it's not there anymore. Now, if a body that is dead is moved, what's the first question you have? Yeah, where'd you put it? Who moved it? Did you move that body? Like, you want to start asking questions. Who, Who moved that body? Why is it not there anymore? This is exactly the question that Mary had. And John captures it in his gospel. He says this, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Matter of fact, later on, she's going to be talking to Jesus. She thinks he's a gardener. And she wants to know, where'd you put the body? Give us Jesus back. Well, the angel was like, he's not here. You're you're not going to find him. Nobody took the body. Nobody hid the body. Don't ask Siri. Siri won't tell you where it is. But that's the introduction to the second message. He's not here. The next words he says is, he is risen. Okay. He was not taken by man. He was really taken by whom? By the Father. He was raised from the dead. He's risen. Jesus proved that the resurrection from the dead was a reality while he was on earth. The first resurrection of the dead that we have, um, I believe, was the widow's son in Luke chapter 7. There was a widow who had only one son to take care of her, and the son passed away, and Jesus raised that boy back to life. In chapter 8 of Luke's gospel, there's an official, Jairus, whose daughter died. And Jesus kicks out all the mourners, all the people who are crying, and goes up to the room and says, she's not dead, she's asleep. And they laugh at him. And he raises her from dead. Now, both of those were not dead long enough to be in a grave, though. But then there's this one guy. Parents, if you ever have a son, consider whether or not you should name him Lazarus. Take that into consideration. Lazarus was raised from the dead and called out from a tomb after being there for four days. 
This is in John chapter 11. I'm going to read this as well because I believe that this is a beautiful parallel passage and an Easter passage that we don't often think of as an Easter passage. John chapter 11, starting in verse 11. Jesus told his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. (laughs) The disciples said, well, Lord, if he's asleep, he'll get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas said to his fellow disciples, well, let's go too, so we can die with him. Isn't there one like that in every group? Anyway, so when Jesus arrived, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days, and Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. And as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Just a side note there. Mary staying in the house was not a disrespect at all. She might not have known Jesus was there, but it was also the custom to stay in the house as part of the mourning process. So Martha runs to Jesus and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Well, your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, no, no, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Well, yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Well, having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And as soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in a place where Martha had met him. And the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. Well, as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Sound familiar? Yeah. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Does this sound familiar at all? Remove the stone, Jesus said. So Martha, the dead man's sister, (laughs) told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of this crowd standing here, I I said this so that they may believe you sent me. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips, with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. And therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. There was a tomb. There was a stone. There was death. It was four days had passed. The key people in the passage include some women. I mean, there's a bunch of connections here. You've, you've got to see it. The purpose was not to make people sad. This event was designed to help them believe. Well, to believe what? Well, Jesus said to his disciples in John eleven fifteen. 15, oops, did I go past it? Yeah. Um, Jesus said to his disciples in John eleven fifteen, 15, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. Well, believe what? Well, the most immediate thing would be to believe that Jesus was sent from the Father, that he was truly the Messiah. 
And in John eleven forty two, 42, we read, I know that you always hear me, but because the crowd is standing here, I say this so that they may believe you sent me. That's part of it. But this is also an experience for the disciples and the women to see the power of God to raise from the dead someone who's been gone for more than just a few hours. Someone who has been passed for multiple days. If anyone would be able to understand the power of the resurrection, it would be the people who saw this event with Lazarus, and especially Lazarus himself, right? Because they saw a physical resurrection back to this life. Surely after knowing that three people were raised from the dead, and one of them long enough to stink, the concept that Jesus had risen would not seem impossible. So the angel's message was, he is not here, he is risen, and they've experienced a risen three different times, at least, that we know of. And then there's this key phrase that you have to grab a hold of. He is risen, what? Just as he said. That is amazing. And that is so important. We already said that Jesus mentioned three times that he would be killed. This happened in Matthew 16, 21, 17, 22, and 20, verse 17, in, the, in those areas. I have the references up here in just a minute. Three times Jesus told them that this would happen, and it happened just as he said. As a matter of fact, Luke, in his account of the resurrection, I think does a great job of bringing this in a little bit more clearly. Oops, did I go? I'm going to start in verse 1, and then we'll go through verse 8. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and they went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed to the ground. Well, why are, why are you looking for the living? Among the dead, he asked them. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, it is necessary for the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, to be crucified, and to rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Three times Jesus told them, each time with a little bit more detail of what was going to happen. The last time in chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, he said that he was going to be crucified. He even named the way that he was going to die. He told them exactly what was going to happen, and it happened just like he said. The resurrection of Jesus proves that the words of Jesus were true and can be trusted. That is so important. It also proves that he has the power to accomplish that which he said he would do. If there was no resurrection, then Jesus was a liar, and everything he said would be worthless. For he said at least three times, I will be killed, I will die, and I will rise again on the third day. The resurrection is a proof of the power of God and that through Jesus we can have redemption. Let me give you some passages on this. Acts 4, verses 8 through 12. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about the good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you. They just got done healing somebody, by the way. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead, and because of that, you can have new life. If they had crucified him and there was no resurrection, he was just a martyr. If they killed him and he stayed dead, then they had more power than he did. Does that make sense? But if he was killed and he was raised again, then neither human powers 
nor death, nor the grave is more powerful than he. Perhaps the ultimate example of humility is that knowing he had full authority and power to conquer death, and he could, that he chose to allow these men to think they have authority over him and to crucify him. Matter of fact, he tells Pilate that. Pilate says, don't you know that I have your life in my hands? Jesus says, you have no authority unless God has given it to you. The fact that he would be so humble to allow that is amazing. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope, and our faith is in vain. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Just bookmark that. Spend some time this week meditating on 1 Corinthians 15. And I just want to highlight a couple of verses from there. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The reversal of death from Adam is the life in Jesus. See, when you go back to the story in Genesis, everything was good in the garden until until man decided that they were going to be smarter than God and did what was good in their eyes instead of what was good in God's eyes. And we've struggled with that ever since, and we've failed ever since. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God promised that there would come one who would undo that curse. The serpent killer, the serpent slayer, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And that one is the Messiah who came to undo the death that we have through Adam and bring about life. And it comes about because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We who believe have a confident hope that death no longer rules us, but instead we have life because of the resurrection of Christ. The same resurrection that Jesus experienced is available to all who believe in him. Do you realize that? The same resurrection is available to all who believe in him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Jesus rose just as he said, and this is one of the reasons we celebrate Resurrection Day. We celebrate the resurrection because it demonstrates that Jesus was indeed the truth. What he said came to pass. That he was indeed the way to the Father, the way to life. That he was indeed the new life to undo the death that we have through Adam. And he proved that he has the hope that we've been longing for. There are many people today that wonder, what's the point of life and what happens after life? Is there life after death? It's been the age-old question, right? Even the Pharisees and Sadducees struggled with this concept, wondering, is there a resurrection from the dead and what's life like after that? We ask this today. Do people believe that there's life after death or not? Do you come back as a slug or something? Or, you know, like, what happens to your life after this physical body passes. Well, Jesus came to show that there is resurrection, that there is life, and it starts here and it continues for eternity. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus is the resurrection. Not that he will be the resurrection or can perform a resurrection, but he is the resurrection, meaning that he's the agent that makes that which was dead come to life. If you read New Testament writers, they'll use this phrase, in Christ. And that's what he means here. Just as many, people, just as, as many of the miracles of Jesus were physical miracles to demonstrate a spiritual truth, for instance, when Jesus wanted to prove that he could forgive sins, he asked, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk, right? But so that you 
will believe, I'll do the physical so you'll believe that the spiritual also happens. Just as so many of Jesus' miracles were physical miracles to demonstrate the spiritual and to prove the power, Jesus was able to conquer death physically. And if so, then he's also able to conquer the punishment for death and the grave and the spiritual death that came from Adam. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross paid the price for our sins. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. And love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The physical proof of the resurrection demonstrates the power that Jesus actually had to also cancel the debt that we have before the Father so that we could stand before God, so that we could stand before God. It's that word righteousness, to have a right standing before God. Not because of us. Dude, I'm weak. I'm pathetic. But because of Christ, I can stand before God. It was the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that paid for my sins, for your sins. And the resurrection proves that Jesus had the power to pay for our sins so that we could be made right in God's eyes, so that we could be adopted into his family. If he can conquer the physical, he can conquer the spiritual. But you see, the resurrection for many people, and and even this whole story of what Jesus came to do for us, for so many, I think it's been so misrepresentative. It's really... It's not this uh, get-out-of-hell-free card, you know, some kind of what they call life insurance or death and fire insurance or whatever. It's, it's not what it's meant to be. It's an invitation to be reconciled to God. The resurrection is an invitation to be reconciled to God. To have a relationship with God restored back to what it was meant to be back in the garden. As a Christian... Easter is not the celebration of the death of Jesus. It's the acknowledgement of the life of Jesus. It proves and provides a new way of living, being directed by God for his kingdom, where we get to be the ones that he chooses to bring blessing to the nations by sharing with them how they can be reconciled with God. The God who loved them enough to sacrifice his own son for them. So why do we celebrate Easter? Why the big deal? Why do we dress up? Why do we show up on Sunday? Why do we read these scriptures? Why is it so important? In Jesus dying, his death on the cross, the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. His death on the cross paid the price for our sins and the sins of the whole world. And his resurrection from the dead proved that he had the power to conquer sin and death and provide new life. While the crucifixion is about the death of the Savior and the death of sin through Jesus, the resurrection is about life and the new life that is available. And Easter is not just an event where we commemorate an event that took place about 2,000 years ago, just a festival where we look back and go, look what God did back then. It's also about an event that can take place in your life today. Romans chapter 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For the scripture says everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. The resurrection is a message of hope for today, for every one of us. I thank God that he reached out to me, that I was able to see Jesus as my Savior, as the Son of God. Every one of us has an opportunity to confess Jesus as Lord. Do you believe that he really raised from the dead? 
Do you need scientific proof? There's historical proof outside of the Bible. But the hope of new life in Jesus, of forgiveness of sins, of a right standing with our Father is available to everyone today. And for those of you that have that commitment, that have made that decision, who have new life in Christ, the last part of the angel's message is for you. For those that have already tasted the rich grace of God, the angel said, come and see, and then go and tell. And I believe that this is our part in the Easter resurrection, in the resurrection celebration. Those of us that have seen, that have seen Jesus, that have seen the life that he brings, that have experienced the reconciliation with God, are to go and to tell. That's why we share this message on Easter. Unashamed. On our own, we're bad. Through Christ, (laughs) we're still bad. But God sees us through the lens of Christ and sees us as good and accepted. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, If anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he's given us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. And he's committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are called to be ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us and we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God because he made the one who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we can have the righteousness of God. May the life of the resurrection be real in your life today and every day. And thanks be to God our Father who in his great grace has provided forgiveness of our sins through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and new life through the resurrection.